From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Wet weather supercharges severe weather. What we've done now with the heavy rain that we've had is we've set the stage for a stormy summer. The soil is really full, so when we start to get the warmer temperatures, you get the evaporation, clouds building, thunderstorms forming, you get more rain, and it's a cycle that builds upon itself. Our regular conversation about weather and climate coming up with Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. Then a preview of summer air travel as United expands at DIA and construction lumbers along. Later, an imbroglio involving graduation regalia. Even teachers have harassing at school about the situation with my sash, but I'm too afraid to speak up. And a giant gift that Colorado lost. An informed and engaged community and nation grows stronger with access to credible and accurate reporting. NPR and CPR news teams are tireless in their efforts to deliver a full picture of the facts. Two organizations working together for a more informed public, one better equipped to recognize false claims and disinformation. Philanthropic gifts help CPR News and NPR do this important work. Explore ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. May has brought heavy rain to portions of our state. Heavy smoke, too, from Canadian wildfires. Meanwhile, severe weather season is getting started, from hail to twisters. A lot to unpack, and to help us with our bags, Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson is back. We speak regularly about Colorado climate and weather. And hi again, Mike. Nice to be with you again, Ryan. When we have had rain and smoke at the same time, it has felt unlike any weather I've experienced. I just kept thinking the rain would somehow flush things out. But, Mike, that didn't seem to occur. It has been a gloomy May. First, we had all of that heavy rain, about eight inches uh, at my house in southeast Aurora. There was the talk of had that been snow. Yes, that would have been about six or seven feet of snow. (laughs) But it came as rain. It helped us uh, really put a dent in our drought locally, which is great. But the smoke is an import all the way from Alberta, Canada. That's kind of flung down on the upper level winds into Colorado in recent days. And the combination of the cloudy, wet weather and then the, the smoky, foggy weather has just been feeling like we moved to Seattle. Is it parked? Are we somehow being parked upon <laughs> by by weather systems? What we've had is uh, the smoke has come down on a uh, around a big high pressure system up in Canada that has brought them very early hot dry weather, hence all the fire problems. Then circling around the front side of that high, the smoke has come in from the Dakotas and then all the way down into mostly eastern Colorado. It hasn't been as big a problem mountains and west, but recent showers just in the last couple of days and again today will help to cleanse the air quite a bit going into the weekend. Oh, okay. So we can count on some of that effect. So the mountains act as almost a smoke curtain. Yes, they do. Uh Uh, That air was kind of trapped on the eastern plains. And really, once you came down from about Genesee or something, and then looking out across the plains and uh, across Denver, it was like, wow, what a, a pall of smoke we have here. One of your fellow TV meteorologists in town, Chris Bianchi, reported that wildfire smoke may keep 
Miller moths here longer, that smoke particles weigh them down as they try to migrate. Uh, have you had moth encounters, Mike? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I almost caught one in the studio right in the middle of my weather cast the other night, and certainly plenty of them in the uh, house. And Tallulah, our little pug, seems to have found an appetite for them. I've caught her eating a couple of them. <laughs> They, they wind up being food and entertainment, I guess. There you go. So the rain seems likely to continue? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of the cliche, we could use the moisture. I, we say that all the time, and I guess it's be careful what you wish for, because what we've done now with the heavy rain that we've had is we've set the stage for a stormy summer because the soil is really full of moisture. And so we start to get the warmer temperatures, you get the evaporation, uh, you get the clouds building, you get the thunderstorms forming, you get more rain, and it's a cycle that builds upon itself. So I think we're going to have a very active June in terms of severe thunderstorms. Oh, that's fascinating. The wet ground affects what happens in the sky. Yep. Just like drought will feed upon drought, because if there's no moisture in the soil to evaporate, you won't get any rain. Will it feed hail? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> As a friend of mine that's in the roofing business, he calls it sky diamonds because when the hail falls, he has a lot of roofs to repair. Uh, yeah, I have different thoughts about hail given the number, of, <laughs> number of cars I've lost. I understand there's an El Nino weather pattern developing. What, it, what does that portend? Okay, the El Nino is the opposite of La Nina, which is what we've been in for the last three years. And that La Nina is cooler than average sea surface temperatures in the Pacific Ocean around the equator. El Nino obviously is warmer than average. And we seem to be getting into what we'd call a super El Nino, which is really warmer ocean water. The ocean takes about 90% of the heat from global warming. And so for the last three years, although we have been in some of the warmest years on record. It's actually been somewhat held down because the sea surface temperatures in the Pacific have been a little bit cooler. All of that heat is now going to be released back into the atmosphere with this big El Nino that's mm -hmm. coming. So a lot of the climate experts are predicting this could well be, if not the hottest year on record coming up in 2023 into 2024, it uh, will certainly be right up there. So the other thing that El Nino can do for us is it tends to supercharge our summer monsoon. So when we get into the rainy season, typically late July into August, this year could be a really strong monsoon season, give us a lot of heavy thunderstorms with uh, flooding rains. And what about tornadoes? Tornado season, we're in it right now. And typically it is the end of May and June. That's our big time of the year for tornadoes. And the reason for that is we still have fairly strong jet stream winds aloft. And if I ever visited your grade school uh, listeners and did the tornado dance, you know that the jet stream feeds in to making thunderstorms spin. And that rotation is what gives us tornado producing thunderstorms, such as what we had about two weeks ago on that Wednesday when we had all the severe weather. We issued Wednesday and Thursday of that week 26 tornado warnings out of the Boulder National Weather Service office in a 24-hour period. That's more than they issued all of last summer combined. My goodness. You know, whenever we talk, Mike, I just get this sense of interconnectedness. The oceans connecting to us in landlocked Colorado, smoke from Alberta connecting to us. The world, when you look at it climatologically, meteorologically, it's actually quite small. Yes, yes. And 
no borders. I mean, the molecules of carbon dioxide, no, no land borders. So they flow all over the world. And as I've mentioned before, from the burning of fossil fuel, we add about 100 million tons of carbon into the atmosphere every single day. And every molecule of carbon dioxide, the analogy I like to use is like a feather in a down comforter, yep. redirecting or trapping heat that would otherwise escape into outer space, warming the planet. Now, locally, regionally, yes, you can have colder conditions, but by far we see that the record high temperatures vastly are outnumbering the record cold temperatures. So weather and climate are not exactly the same, but they're they're very related. You have also added nuance a few times in this conversation by using the word locally. Um, I think that you used it in reference to drought, that, that locally the drought has been abated. But if we zoom out to the west and the Colorado River states, what's the drought picture? Have the recent soakings changed that broader picture fundamentally? Well, it's improved it, but we would need to have winters like we just had for year after year after year to truly start to make any real push to bring the water levels up in both Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Lake Powell's coming up right now because all of that snow is rapidly melting out of Utah and Colorado. But the amount of use, you know, the number of straws in that Colorado River, 40 million people being served by it, uh, it would take a lot of wet winters in order to change that around. The thrust of our new podcast, Parched, which you can find everywhere. Mike, thank you so much. Brian, always a pleasure. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's a world of hope and a world of fear. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson chats climate and weather with us once a month. Still to come, what to expect this summer if you're getting on an airplane. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting about the environment in and affecting Colorado. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver International Airport is a very busy place these days. Crammed parking lots, jammed security lines, and it's about to get busier, with Memorial Day marking the start of the summer travel season. Meanwhile, the airport's largest carrier just announced expansion plans as pilots picket. The editor of Airline Weekly joins us from Washington. He's Edward Russell. Edward, welcome back to the show. Ryan, it's a pleasure to be here. About 400,000 people are expected to travel through DIA between yesterday and Tuesday. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spoke earlier this week about the national picture, and he said Memorial Day travel will be, quoting him, a test of the system. What did he mean by that? So nationally, there are a lot of constraints that, that airlines face uh, from uh, delayed delivery of new airplanes, staffing uh, issues. But Pete, uh, Secretary Buttigieg was speaking to the, the shortage of air traffic controllers around the country. They're down about 3,000 people from their target levels. And as a result of that, they we've had a number of times where they've had to slow flights down in places like Denver, actually, recently, because they simply didn't have enough controllers. Oh, that's a pipeline issue. Is that similar to the labor issues that all sorts of industries are facing? 
Yeah, I'd say it's connected to a lot of things. You know, historically, the flow of new air traffic controllers has been limited by uh, the congressional budgetary process. You know, that was exacerbated during the pandemic when they shut down training programs and mm. then people also retired. So it's it's sort of been building up. And the problem is, is, you know, through getting out of a 3000 person hole takes time. Uh, the FAA plans to hire about 1500 new controllers this year, though my understanding is, is uh, the attrition rate there is about half. So really, they're only could expect to get about 750 new controllers. So it'll take a few years to really build back the ranks of air traffic. Controllers. You also mentioned the late delivery of new aircraft. Is that similar to what people face when they're buying a car? Is this just a supply chain issue? Yes, it is. There's a, a lot of, of Airbus and Boeing, which make most of the planes flying around the world. They are just unable to get all the parts that, that they need, that they, they get in the timely manner, everything from engines to you know fuselage pieces, and that's delaying the delivery of planes. You know, United, who has big ambitions there in Denver, you know, they're expecting, uh, I believe, 10 to 15 fewer planes this year than they are contractually supposed to get. And that takes a bite out of uh, what, how much they can grow, how much they can fly. And yet we are going to see some impressive passenger numbers. So is it just that there are more passengers flying on fewer planes, like they're just more packed? Absolutely. So the best way to, to describe that is, is, you know, airlines facing shortage of pilots, shortage of planes are, are really focused on flying their largest planes and parking their smallest ones. So huh. they've parked a lot of the 50 seat regional jets that I think a lot of people agree they, they don't necessarily love and, and they're flying more 737s, uh, 777s. So they're able to get more people through the system, even though they're flying fewer flights. OK, you mentioned United's announcement that it has big plans to expand in Denver. What's on tap here? What's the time frame? So United will be adding 35 additional uh, early morning flights. Now, these are flights that are going to be targeted to the local market um, later this year. They're also adding six new destinations, uh, including two in the Caribbean, San Juan, Montego, Montego Bay. But as part of that, they're, they're also expanding to 90 gates at DIA, which is going to be the most they've ever had there. And that's going to be complete by next summer, 2024, when those gates open. Were the picketing pilots aware of the timing of that announcement for some leverage as they fight for better schedules and better pay, do you think? So Scott Kirby, the CEO of United, was was in Denver for that announcement earlier this week, and that was known by the union uh, at least a week beforehand. So I'm sure that they were there to, to some leverage. There's been ongoing contract talks between the airline and pilots for some time now. So uh, pilots want to get a deal. I, I know Kirby wants to get a deal. The question is just when can they you know, agree to to different terms? So, yes, uh, definitely using the CEO's appearance to, to push for a contract. Why is United investing to this scale in Denver of, of you know, not Chicago, for instance? We've all <laughs> probably flown through O'Hare if we've flown United and then got grounded by thunderstorms or snow. Or, uh, yeah, so O'Hare is, is, a, is a whole different beast. So the problem with O'Hare is it is at capacity. There is simply very little room for United to add more flights there. The airport, they have a growth plan, but it's it's years away. Huh. So United's only option to grow there is to fly those larger planes I was talking about. Denver, on the other hand, it was an airport built for growth. You have multiple runways 
widely spaced out so more flights can go through. The concourses were designed to be able to telescope, which is what we're seeing the airport build out now. Airport is prime, Denver is prime for growth, and that's why United sees such an opportunity there. They can add the flights, add the add the seats there, and it's frankly geographically really well positioned to connect people across the country. If you're flying from New York to LA, Denver's right in the middle. So it's a great place to connect people for maybe not New York, LA, but New York, Albuquerque. How about that? Oh, so a lot of the passenger traffic will be kind of through traffic. What, what does that mean? I don't know, for like customers who actually live in Colorado, do they benefit from that kind of traffic? Does the airport benefit from that kind of traffic? Or is it just like more crowds, more throngs, longer lines at Cinnabon? Well, it will be some longer lines at Cinnabon, that's for sure. And and I think everyone in Denver can agree the airport really needs to add some more trains connecting the concourses to the terminal. That's mm-hmm. uh, definitely a choke point. But it is good for local Coloradans because... The more United grows there, the more they're able to flow passengers through, the more flights they can add. So, you know, Kirby on Tuesday speaking at DIA said that, you know, they're going to grow international long haul travel because they're going to be putting more people through. And that means local Denverites are going to be able to fly to more places like Paris and London and Tokyo. They already fly to those places, but more cities like that, maybe Munich or Madrid in the future. Because they have the traffic to support those flights. So ultimately, it will benefit local locals there. And then uh, to your point, the 35 new flights that they're adding in the morning, those are not connecting flights. They'll leave around 6 a.m. They're, they're targeting that Denver passenger that needs to get to Las Vegas for an early meeting or go to Atlanta. Do concessions improve as a result of this? Do the lounges improve for those who are... A little top shelf. The lounges are improving. United has uh, big plans for its lounges in Denver. You know, I'm sure. Uh, you know, I was flying through with my family in April, and one of the big lounges in Concourse B is under renovation, and and that's making the other lounges very crowded. But when it opens, and it's supposed to open this summer, it's going to be I want to say double the size. So the lounge is going to be a lot more spacious. As for the concessions, that that is a challenge right now. A lot of the new gates that are opening at DIA, you know, the concessions haven't been built out in those sections of the concourse. So that's putting some pressure on the other concessions uh, at the airport. You know, I know DIA's plans to fill those out. It's uh, but it goes back to the the supply chain issue and staffing issues that we're seeing around the country. You know, they've got to get companies that have the staff and the ability to open restaurants uh, and get those going. And that just unfortunately takes time. If you're just joining us, we're getting a bit of a summer travel preview, especially through DIA, from Edward Russell, who's the editor of Airline Weekly. He's based in Washington, D.C., but he has long Colorado connections. And, um, Edward, you mentioned the the trains. I think they're officially buses, actually, even though they look train-like, that take you from the concourse to the terminal. I know that DIA has had a request for proposals out for some time, for some redundancy there, not just capacity, but if those break down, you know, you're you're kind of up a creek. Um, is Denver unusual in its expanding right now? Not at all. You know, a lot of airports around the country have have seen traveler numbers come surging back from the pandemic and and are really in growth mode right now. Mm. Um, many put on hold projects when the pandemic hit and, and they're now trying to move those forward. 
you know, Dallas Fort Worth uh, just unveiled its some plans to add uh, build a new terminal that had been planned in 2019 and was was postponed. So Denver is not alone. Adding to that is you have President Biden's big infrastructure bill that passed a few years ago, yeah. and that has some of the first federal funds for airport capital expansion that uh, the federal government has ever ever awarded. So a lot of airports are pushing for those those dollars and moving forward expansion projects to take advantage of the availability of those grants. Where does United's expansion leave Southwest? Should I think of like that's the second biggest airline at Denver, I think. Oh, there's a heated rivalry between the two. Southwest likes to claim that it carries the most local passengers in Denver, uh, whereas United may be the largest, but we talked about they're they're carrying a lot of connecting travelers. Yeah. Well, Reese, those those new early morning flights United will operate are, are going to go right up against Southwest, which offers similar flights. So there's a heated rivalry there, but I don't think anyone can expect uh, Southwest to back down. They also are adding a lot of new gates in Denver. So I would expect growth on both airlines going forward. In a bit of marketing, um, I don't know if it's genius exactly, but United created an app that will remind you when to check in for your Southwest flight, which I thought was, was very clever and a kind of shot across the bow. But in the last few minutes, let's go back to the passenger experience. Uh, we began the conversation by talking about how the Secretary of Transportation thinks this will be a test of the system this Memorial Day. Is there something that passengers should keep in mind? Should they be braced for delays? Is there a smarter way to approach this summer? I think everyone, as they head out for their trips Memorial Day weekend or through the summer, give yourself a little bit more time at the airports. They're going to be crowded. And, you know, bring uh, bring some patience with you. Have a little grace. Airline employees, TSA staff, they want to get you through and get you to your destination, too. Just remember that they they don't want to delay you, so they're doing their best. Everyone's doing their best, so yeah, just travel with a little grace this summer, and and you know, just, just be re- be ready. Don't give yourself some time. Here's the thing, Edward. I'm running out of grace for all the construction at DIA. Do you, <laughs> I you know, and I don't want to be unkind, but um, any sense of when that will be wrapping up? A large a large uh, portion of that is the Great Hall construction. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, the Great Hall project was originally supposed to end in 2021, 2022, I believe, but is now looking at 2028. You know, that's over budget, unfortunately, and years delayed. You know, when it's done, it will look nice, but <laughs> I, I wish I had something better to tell you. It's, it's going to be facing some uh, some long some construction uh, delays there at the terminal for some years to come. Thanks so much, Edward. Thank you. He's Edward Russell, editor of Airline Weekly in Washington. DIA indeed urges passengers to arrive at least two hours early for their flights. And because of the parking crunch, not to park at the airport if you can avoid it. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with two graduation stories. One is a last-ditch effort. The other is a last-minute speech. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years, a big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. 
supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Graduation is this weekend at Grand Valley High School in western Colorado. It will also be the culmination of a month-long controversy over cultural regalia. Senior Naomi Peña Vianzano asked to wear a sash representing her Mexican-American heritage. School leaders said no. Now things have gotten litigious. Our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, is following this story. Hi, Tom. Hello. Give us a little more of the background here, will you? So this story showed up about a month ago in the Glenwood Springs Post-Independent. Naomi is set to graduate in parachute this weekend. Ahead of that, she got a custom sash from one of her brothers. It has the Mexican flag on one side and the U.S. flag on the other. Naomi was born in Colorado, but her parents immigrated from Mexico. She says she reached out to the principal of Grand Valley High School and asked if she could wear it during the ceremony. He said no. So this issue gets kicked up to the superintendent, and that's where things flared up. I gather you're referring to a comparison with the Confederate flag. Correct. So in some emails shared with us and with some other news outlets, Superintendent Jennifer Baugh basically said that allowing students to wear flags would lead the district open to unintended consequences. As an example, she said someone could wear a Confederate flag. Now, Naomi and her supporters point out that one of these is a hate symbol that's been removed from state flags, like in South Carolina, for example, and the other is the national flag of a sovereign country. And actually two sovereign countries, if you include the U.S. flag on the other side of the sash and Mexico on the opposite. So um, is this a dress code thing? Yes and no. The district has said that this is about graduation policies, but students say they've identified plenty of times in the past when those policies weren't strictly adhered to. And the district allows students to decorate their graduation caps. They even said you can put a flag on there if you want. And so the argument is if that's allowed, then what's the problem with a sash? So for Naomi, the arbitrary nature of this actually feels like a pattern. She spoke to the school board earlier this month. As a Latina, I have not felt like I've belonged at Garfield County School District. And especially now that I'm standing up for what I believe in, the district have not supported me. Even teachers have harassed me at school about the situation with my sash, but I'm too afraid to speak up. My family and I have lived in parachute for almost a decade, and I've not seen or felt my culture represented or celebrated by this district. This district needs to do better in welcoming their students. This isn't just about me as an individual, this is about our future. Graduations are so special and a lot of people only get to graduate once in their life. And graduation isn't just for one individual. It's about the graduating class, our families, and their community. It'd be beautiful to just show off our cultures on such a special day to all of us. I'm not only doing this for myself, but also for my family, and especially my parents, who never got the chance to even graduate from high school or even attend in high schools. Naomi's mother, Anna, joined her at that meeting. You'll hear Naomi interpreting. We came to this country to offer my kids a better life and to have a different lifestyle for them. We worked so hard in this country. As a mom, I feel so proud of Naomi and support her. 
es una niña muy buena y como estudiante inteligente, buena, luchona, trabajadora y es una guerrera. She's a really good girl. She's smart. She's intelligent. She's great and she's courageous. Porque desde pequeña ella se proponía, ella todo lo que se proponía lo lograba con respeto siempre hacia los demás. Take your time now. And ever since she was a little girl, everything that she sets her mind to, she always completes. Creo que esto debe de cambiar como comunidad. I feel like the school district needs to change this because this is a community issue. Porque no se está ofendiendo a nadie. She is offending anyone. Deberían de permitir a cada estudiante que represente su you guys, you guys should allow all students to have cultural representation. All right, Tom, is the district reconsidering? Kind of. The school district says they're going to review the policy, but not until after this year's ceremony. They've been pretty tight-lipped about this on the advice of their attorney, but here's Board President Lynn Shore. He gave a statement on the matter. District believes there is not adequate time to properly consider change to its rules and traditions prior to graduation, so the current rules and traditions will be in effect and fully enforced. Because the issues raised have merit, and it is time to review the rules and traditions around our graduation ceremony, these will be reviewed during the 23-24 school year. All those impacted, including students, parents, staff, administration, and the community members will be invited to participate. This will be done with the intent of assuring that the 2024 uh, graduation ceremony will proceed without controversy. Folks in Parachute, I understand, have lobbied the board to allow Naomi to wear her sash um, but was anyone there asking that they keep the rules in place at the board meeting? Not at the last board meeting, no. Lynn Shore, the board president, did suggest that there wouldn't be unanimity regardless of the outcome, and he called it a difficult situation. In talking with folks around the community and uh, staff, there isn't anybody that really is having a good time and relishing being involved in this. We know that no matter what is done somebody's going to be unhappy. Uh, there will be claims that the decision is unjust or it's ill-conceived or uh, just stupid. And there's no winner. Nobody's going to be doing victory laps uh, when, this, when this is done. I understand Naomi visited the state capitol earlier this month. Uh, the same week, Governor Polis signed a bill affirming the rights of indigenous students to wear cultural regalia at graduation. That's right. She was there with Democratic State Representative Elizabeth Velasco. Her district includes Parachute, and she co-sponsored that bill. Velasco said she was going to revisit the issue next year to expand protections for cultural regalia. And does Velasco have concerns about the kind of slippery slope argument like the superintendent expressed? No, she notes that plenty of graduation ceremonies allow for more self-expression and you don't hear about those schools being mired in controversy over one student wearing something unanticipated. What about this lawsuit that's been filed just briefly? 
Uh, there had been hints that this could go to court, and sure enough, on Wednesday it did. So it's in the U.S. District Court. It cites some violations of the First Amendment and freedom of speech. Tom, you'll be at graduation this weekend. I understand Naomi says she'll wear the sash, right? She's planning on wearing the stash or the sash. The district says they expect their policies to be followed. Uh, I don't think anyone anticipates her being hauled off stage, but it will be something to watch, which I will be. Tom Hess, our Western Slope producer, who will be in parachute this weekend for Grand Valley High's graduation. There was a slight hiccup at Colorado Christian University's commencement this year. The keynote speaker got sick, so the chancellor stepped in. Dr. Donald W. Sweeting had just 72 hours to prepare his remarks. Let's listen as part of our series that dips into graduation speeches from around the state. Congratulations, class of 2023. Today, I'm as surprised to be your commencement speaker as some of you are to be graduating today. I realize that. (laughs) But uh, you finished the course. We're proud of you. You did it. And we celebrate your achievement. And uh, as William Buckley once told a graduating class, do not think of me as your commencement speaker. Think of me as the last obstacle between you and your degree. Uh, Unlike you, my educational journey was not as efficient as yours. In the first school I went to, I didn't graduate uh, magna cum laude. I didn't graduate summa cum laude. I didn't graduate cum laude. I I think I just graduated laude. And of course, my parents were deeply praying to the Lord that I would graduate. So so, um, I I didn't graduate with honors. I was just honored to, to graduate. Uh, Which reminds me a little bit of something that uh, former President George Bush once said when he was speaking in 2015 to Southern Methodist University. The 43rd president of the United States said this. He said, to those of you who are graduating this afternoon with honors and awards and distinctions, I say, well done. And as I like to tell the C students, you can be president as well. (laughs) So take heart. Have hope. Chancellor Sweeting laid out a series of priorities for students as they enter this new chapter. Here's one of them. Be faithful in little things, right where you are. I know you're in a hurry to get on with your dream job and to get to the next level, but like Joseph, who had a dream, you don't realize all that's between where you are now and the dream where God will providentially lead you. But trust him and be faithful right where you are now. Beware of thinking that any job you have now is beneath you. In fact, I want to give you one more assignment, may I? A little assignment. But go talk to somebody you admire and ask them what were their first seven jobs. You might be surprised how small they were and yet how important. My first job was working on a farm. My my dad wanted to teach me how to work. And so he said, off you go. This was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in Amish country. And I spent weeks just picking beans and strawberries and packing the truck for market. And that was my first job. My second job was a janitor, cleaning up in shops, cleaning toilets. My third job was um, a store clerk. And you look at people, some that you may admire, and you never think of them in that role, but that's where they started. They had to earn their spurs, pay their dues. So please beware of wanting that big job too soon. Actually, there's a great advantage in serving in a small place and developing habits that will serve you for life. As the prophet Zechariah put it, do not despise the day of small things. 
And he spoke that to people who are captivated with the big and the bold. The degree that you get, it will most likely open doors. But far more important than your degree is being faithful in little things. Faithful in doing them really, really well. Dr. Donald W. Sweeting, Chancellor of Colorado Christian University in Lakewood, he delivered this year's commencement speech last minute. For what it's worth, some of my early jobs outside of broadcasting were scooping ice cream, driving an airport limousine, and working in a queer gift shop. All right, we'll be right back with a gift from France that Colorado somehow managed to lose. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Near Highlands Ranch, the quiet town of Louviers has an explosive history, literally. More than a billion pounds of dynamite came out of the Louviers Works factory in the 20th century for things like mining and transportation. And it started in 1906 when the DuPont Company acquired Toluca, Colorado, renamed it, built a dynamite factory, and established the company town of Louviers. Workers and their families got cheap housing, recreational facilities, and a doctor. Work was dangerous, deadly explosions, and for some workers, ill health from handling chemicals. When demand for dynamite dropped in the 70s, DuPont sold its properties to residents and turned the town administration over to a newly formed council. Louvier's Works officially closed in the 80s, the longest operating DuPont dynamite plant. With thanks to Douglas County Libraries, this is a Colorado postcard from CPR, supported by National Jewish Health. Here with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner. How does a train car go missing? That mystery is at the heart of our next story. The question I had was I wondered what happened to the Merci train car that France sent to Colorado. Susan Donaldson contacted us through Colorado Wonders, where you ask us a question and we try to find the answer. Indeed, France gave us a gift. We're not talking about the Statue of Liberty here. This comes 60 years later. Europe is in tatters following World War II. A continent dazed with war, numb with grief, hysterical with happiness because peace had come at last. So in 1947, a train travels across the United States gathering aid, $40 million worth, which gets shipped to France, England, and Italy. Then in 1949, something of a thank you note arrives. The thank you note is the Merci train from France where each state received a carload of gifts, including things like children's toys, fine china, even wedding dresses. Stephanie Gilmore made a short film about this gift exchange. We met at the Colorado Railroad Museum in Golden. She says the Merci boxcars held not just gifts, but a lot of meaning. Yes, they were very symbolic because they were used in both world wars to transport soldiers along the front lines. And they were very bare bones. um, And they had been built in the 1870s and 80s, so they were quite old already. And they had a lot of cracks and crevices. And I read one account from a soldier who said they were very cold, unpleasant. There were no seats. So we're talking just a boxcar where 40 men were crammed in there like sardines. And they had this sort of shared misery that they bonded over. And in fact, these were called 40 and 8s because they would either fit 40 men 
40 people or eight horses. Horses. And so to have gifted these, one to each state, was to have said something about a longer timeline of history in addition to saying thanks. Yes, it was definitely a very symbolic gift, very symbolic. The car itself down to every gift inside. And Colorado, the 38th state, gets its own boxcar. What do you know about it? So what I know is that the Colorado Railroad Museum possesses one plaque that was affixed to the side of the car. Um, It did come to Denver. There are pictures of it in downtown Denver when it first arrived, but that was as far as I could see for photos. Was it a big occasion when it arrived? Yes, actually a lot of people gathered in downtown Denver to see it arrive to open it. It was like a Christmas party, opening a giant gift. And you seem to hint there that all that remains is a plaque, Stephanie? <laughs> yes. Um, there, there are two plaques, actually. There's one at the Colorado Railroad Museum, and there's another at a legionnaire's office. You have this plaque with you. Do you want to unfurl it from its packaging and read it to us? Sure. So on this plaque, it says, Boxcar used in the First World War, presented by the French National Railroads to the state of Colorado, in gratitude for the help given to France by the American people. Today, 43 of the 49 Merci train cars remain. By the way, Merci French for thank you. What happened to the other six? So the other six, as far as we know, were either scrapped for parts and doled out to other cars or railroads or burned, or we don't know. We don't know. And that, <laughs> that is the case for Colorado's Mercy train car. That is true for Colorado's Mercy train car. It is missing. And the farthest, the Colorado Railroad Museum and the Forney Museum of Transportation, which is in uh, eastern Denver, we believe it exists on a ranch somewhere in Colorado, but we don't know where. Okay, that's wonderfully specific and yet <laughs> vexingly unspecific. Right. Um, well, I should be more clear. Maybe a legionnaire's ranch in Colorado, because there was so much connection with the American Legion and this society of 40 and eights. So some legionnaire in Colorado may have it on his or her ranch. You have put out a kind of APB, an (laughs) all-points bulletin for this train car. Have you gotten hints? I received a few phone calls from people guessing, oh, I think this might be in a barn on a neighbor's property. Um, I had one call. I I called back, and I never got a hold of that person. Um, And it was guessed that... It was sitting in a barn somewhere. But if it was sitting in a barn, I think we would know because it's such a specific little car. It is a European car, after all. It's a small box car. It's only 20 and a half feet by eight and a half feet. So that's quite little, not a standard American box car. And so we would know, I think, if it was sitting in a barn. Somebody would have reported that. Somebody would have uploaded a photo. I feel like in today's TikTok, Instagram reality. We would have gotten a whiff of it. Right. And each car was also decorated with heralds from every province in France. So 
what became of those heralds? We don't know. What became of the little, there's a little symbol that was put on every single Merci train car that is a little train with a French flag and American flag. So that is pretty significant. You'd think we'd find that, but no. Do you still hold out hope of finding it, or have you kind of written it off as perhaps destroyed, but never accounted for? My greatest guess is that it is repurposed somewhere in Colorado. It could be a chicken coop, because that happens a lot with cars. It could be a shed on somebody's property. It could be even buried. That happens sometimes. So there... I I hope that it's out there. I would love to find it. At the very least, I think building a replica would be lovely to have so people could see it and understand what it is. But I I do hold out hope that it's somewhere. Now, one can see other states' Mercy train cars because so many of them survived. Uh, There were 49 in total. Why 49? There were 48 for all the states in existence at the time, and then the 49th one was shared between Washington, D.C. and Hawaii. Have you seen any of the other train cars? I actually have never seen one myself. Uh, I know people who have. They're often at museums or parks or legionnaires' offices. I'm so charmed by the idea of the gifts that were inside. You know, some of these were maybe more typical gifts of the state, and some of them were mementos from people's homes. I think in the film you made, you talked about rosary beads, a family's rosary beads being sent to the United States as a thank you. Do you want to reflect a bit more on what was inside? So the items inside were more symbolic than they were per se useful. The items that were given by the U.S. to France on the friendship train in 47 were personal care items, water, and food, so to help out Europe after everything. But the items that were given to the U.S. by France were sweet mementos. Even sometimes they would give war medals, so even soldiers would give up their war medals, which... I don't know how that is in France, but in America, giving up your war medal is quite a big deal. So very symbolic, very meaningful. Wedding gowns, Stephanie? Wedding gowns, yes. And they were actually worn by American brides. The items that came in the Merci train car were distributed to different museums so that people could enjoy them. So that's odd because how would we not know where the car is today if we know where the gifts are? Because we know some of the gifts are in a museum in La Junta. Uh, Some of the gifts are at History Colorado. Ironically, at the Colorado Railroad Museum, I don't think we have any, except we do have the plaque from the car. And unfortunately, we do not know how we came about the plaque. I don't know how it got here. So there are many, many mysteries to this story. Do we, should we put a reward up, I guess? A ransom for the car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking nonprofit museums here, but, you know, in part, we're doing this interview because perhaps it will shake something loose. You must have that hope when you talk to people about the Mercy train car. That would be so exciting. Um, when I was working with the Colorado Railroad Museum for seven years, this was the great mystery of railroading for me. I found the story to be so charming and so meaningful. 
and I would love to find the whereabouts of this car. So I'm holding out hope. Stephanie Gilmore speaking with us at the Colorado Railroad Museum in Golden, where there is a remnant, a lonely plaque from Colorado's missing Mercy train car, a gift from the French after World War II. Gilmore is now a curator at the Golden History Museum. We answered a question from Susan Donaldson. What's something about our state you want to learn about? Head over to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and let us know. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. I am thrilled to announce the next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You read with us, then take part in a conversation with the author. Our new pick is Soil, the story of a black mother's garden by Camille T. Dungy. She is a distinguished professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and she is indeed a parent and a plant mom. There are so many similarities between raising a child and raising plants. One of them that strikes me that I write about in Soil directly is the fact that plants come in these tiny little packages. They just, they're seeds or seedlings that can fit in the palm of your hand. And then I have to remember when I put them in the soil that they could grow to be six feet tall and and as wide. And I have to give them the space and the support that they need to grow into their full possibilities. And of course, my own daughter, I could once hold in my hand and now she's almost taller than I am. And I have to always be able to give her the support and the space that she needs to truly grow the way she needs to. This is a book about gardens and family and justice. Pick up a copy of Soil by Camille T. Dungy. And then join us in the perfect place for this interview, Denver Botanic Gardens, later this month. So tickets are free, but limited. To claim yours and to get details, head over to CPR.org slash turn the page. And I ought to have said that event is in June, not later this month. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.